Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. I'm going to read through the end of chapter 2 this morning. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes to Titus, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in faith. Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their work. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of our Savior, of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our god and er, of our great god and savior jesus christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good work declare these things exhort and rebuke with all authority let no one disregard you this is the fourth week we're spending time in Titus in the letter that Paul wrote to Titus. And I have to admit, I said we were going to spend six weeks in this letter, and we're actually going to spend longer um, because as I was preparing, I got to verse two and I was like, I'm pretty much at a solid, uh, a solid nine pages of notes here. And so uh, we're, which is kind of the threshold where I have to be like, I got to call it quits now. And so we're actually going to take a little bit more time here because this is so rich and it's so good. And I'm so excited that we're here uh, right now as, as a church, that God has, has directed us here for, for this time. So this is week four. I don't know how many it's going to be, um, but just buckle your seatbelts. We'll get there. Um, you'll notice, though, that last week's text is the same as this week's text. And that's because I want you to see the flow of the argumentation here. 
I don't want you to think compartmentalized with this really kind of short letter. And last week, I encouraged you to go home and to read all of Titus because it doesn't take you very long to read all of Titus. And I would do that again this week. Sit down, read through it, maybe sometime this week, maybe this afternoon before our celebration this evening, or maybe uh, just maybe commit yourself to reading through it once a day or listening to it on your, on your audio app. It's, it's really, I think it's really wonderful how Paul structures this letter to this, to this young man who's ministering to these churches in Crete. And you'll remember that Titus has learned from Paul. Titus is Paul's protege. Paul is Titus's mentor. And Titus now in Crete, serving a handful of churches, little island in the Mediterranean, in the Mediterranean. And Paul tells Titus to bring what remains in order. We didn't read that, but if you go back in verse five, if you have your Bible in front of you, uh, and if you closed it after I read it, open it back up. Verse five, so that you might put what remained in order. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town. So Titus is meant to, uh, is meant to bring what remains into order in these young fledgling churches and to see them grow uh, and to appoint elders to see that task carried out. And Crete, you'll remember, is an island that is very well known for its immorality. It's a, a tough place to do ministry, and even its own poets wrote 600 years earlier, which seemed to still be the, uh, seemed to be the culture there, is that there are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And Paul knew this well because he was there and he planted these churches. And so when he sent Titus, he warns him, this is what we talked about last week, he warns him about the cultural conformity uh, that threatens uh, and could quickly shipwreck these tiny churches in these communities. And Paul warns about the false teachers that seek to prey on Christians who are not sound in faith. And that's where we started this morning in our reading in verse 10. There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. These are those false teachers who are trying to uh, to, to to take the gospel and add things to it and, and, and say, you've got to do this as well as you have to trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and then you need to be circumcised or you need to, and we need to avoid this. Paul is clear to Titus. These ones need to be silenced. They need to be rebuked sharply because they're leading men and women to hell. They're taking them and adding something to the gospel which is removing the effectiveness of the gospel entirely, not by works of the law, but by grace through faith, salvation comes to us. So I want to remind you quickly before we get in sort of the second half of this passage that I read this morning, just how relevant this is for our day. Paul writes to the church in Rome in Romans chapter 12, verse two, he says, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Conformity to the world uh, or to the culture is very dangerous for the Christian because when we allow the culture around us to shape us, when we allow the world around us to shape us, we open ourselves up to all sorts of deception. However, when we, like Paul writes in Romans, are transformed by the renewal of our mind, we guard ourselves against 
this being shaped by the culture. We guard ourselves against these deceptions. The two, here's how I'd sum it up. Two distinctions that I want you to make. The world is a changing place. We know that. We're people. We change. We're creatures. And as the world changes around us, we're tempted to be reactive to it. We're tempted to react to the changes that we see transpiring around us, both in our culture, maybe in your own family, maybe, in the, maybe just in your own personal growth and development. You are tempted to, uh, to be reactive to the changes that are going on around you. And that opens you up to being conformed by the changing world. But God, this is good news, God has given us his word that does not change. God himself does not change, and therefore his word does not change. And therefore we can go to God's word and look at it in front of us and be proactive in our obedience to it. And when we go to God's word and we look together at God's word and understand what it's being said, the Holy Spirit comes to us and gives us deeper understanding of what's happening here on the page then we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. So, as the world changes around us, we are tempted to be reactive to the world, opening ourselves up to being conformed by it. But God has given us his word, which does not change, and therefore we can be proactive in our obedience to it uh, in order that we might be transformed by it. Our culture claims, and makes many claims, that are more and more opposed to the word of God. But if we're embedded in the culture, above the word of God, we will be conformed to worldly ideas. So you see in the word conformity, you can see it on the screen, it's highlighted there. The word conformity, you see the word form, so there's a formational element here, and then the prefix there, con, means with. So what Paul is saying is, do not be formed alongside or with the world. Don't be, uh, don't be modeled or shaped by it. Because if we become shaped by the culture, then when the culture changes its mind on any given issue or any given thing, we'll go right along with it. This is what Paul is addressing in Ephesians 4 when he writes to the Ephesian church, encouraging maturity in them. In verse 14 of chapter 4, he says uh, that conformity to the world looks like being tossed to and fro by the waves and carried off by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. We want something far more uh, solid. Something far more sure and certain than what the world is giving us. When we are conformed to the world, we open ourselves to all sorts of deceptions. Every wind of doctrine, every human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful scheme. But, in opposition to this, when we are embedded in the word of God, as opposed to embedded in the culture, we'll be transformed by the renewal of our minds. We'll see the world around us through God's eye. Unlike the culture around us, God does not change his mind. And so we need to be changed to match his mind and not the other way around. God changes us through his word. And the word transform 
Those words kind of look similar in our English language, but uh, they don't look so similar in the original. But the original language, the word transformed, is actually where we get the English word metamorphosis from. Like a caterpillar to a butterfly. Something completely different or seemingly externally different than what it started at. There is a changing beyond what we are that occurs when we go to God's word. The fruit that is born in us looks completely different than where we were prior to Christ and prior to God's word taking its effect in us. The change that occurs in us when our minds are renewed by God's word is like a caterpillar to a butterfly. And so we want to think as God thinks on something like, or anything, any cultural issue, because we cannot be shaped along with the world. Rather, we must be shaped to think the way that God thinks and praise God that he has given us his word so we don't have to guess. You and I, you don't have to guess what God thinks. Right here. It's in your lap. Or on your phone. Right there. The Bible. So, Titus needs to combat that cultural conformity that makes those who are part of the churches in Crete susceptible to the false teaching of the Judaizers and others. He needs to, Paul says, bring order appointing elders to help with it. But it doesn't end with just the pastor elder. It doesn't just end with those who are leading out in this. Paul makes it clear, and as we get into chapter 2, that this is for every believer who is part of the local church. It's not just about the top tier. The elders of Buffalo City Church are charged with keeping first things first. We're called to maintain order, for properly ordering congregational worship, for shepherding the flock, for fighting off wolves. But that does not remove responsibility from each and every individual who makes up the local church to pursue knowing God through his word. And so that's exactly where Paul goes next. In chapter 2, that's exactly where Paul goes. Because Paul tells Titus, to fight the false teaching and cultural conformity that threatened the churches in Crete. And I think that the hinge verse for all the whole letter is ch- chapter 2, verse 1. Because we see a but there, and we move into a new conversation. We've been talking about false teaching. We've been talking about cultural conformity. But as for you, Teach what accords with sound doctrine. You now understand the culture around you. You've been thinking about it. You've been processing it. But what should you do in response? But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then what follows in the rest of chapter 2 fleshes this out. It puts skin on the bones. So the two ideas that we find here in this text, and we're actually going to, or in this this verse, verse 1, are actually going to guide our time together this morning. The first thing that we need to consider is what is this sound doctrine? And then, what accords with this sound doctrine? 
two things. What is the sound doctrine? And then what accords with the sound doctrine? The sound doctrine, Paul tells Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine. The sound doctrine, the Holy Spirit graciously inspired Paul to write about the sound doctrine. So it's not like, what are, we, what, are we, what are you talking about, Paul? And then just a list of to-dos or that sort of thing. It's going to require us to go down the page, but, uh, but we're going to see it in verses 11 through 14. What is this sound doctrine? Sound doctrine may seem like strange language to us, but sound simply means in good condition. Um, doctrine that is in good condition. And doctrine, again, may not be a word that you use regularly, but that simply means concise, understandable, true statements about belief. Concise, uh, understandable, true statements about belief. So for Buffalo City Church, those who are members here at Buffalo City Church have seen our statement of faith, and maybe uh, maybe you've seen it other places, but the, a statement of faith is like a doctrinal statement. There's a handful of clear, concise, understandable statements about what we believe as a church. That's what a church statement of faith is. And so sound doctrine amounts to statements about a belief that are in good condition. Good condition according to what? Good condition according to God's word. If the foundation, think about it this way, if the foundation of the house is solid, then the house itself, even if it needs a little bit of TLC here and there, the house is in a good place. But if the foundation is damaged or decaying, the whole house is in trouble. Sound doctrine is the foundation of the house. And then Paul, let's look together, verses 11 through 14. Paul writes about this sound doctrine here in in these verses. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and, tra- and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good work. This gives us a neat little summary of sound doctrine, and it gives us a neat little summary of the gospel itself, which is sound doctrine. And, and what's beautiful about this is that it kind of just hits on a bunch of different ideas that are contained within the gospel. I want to explore those together this morning so that when we talk about sound doctrine, when we talk about the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel, that we would understand what's being said. Paul starts out by saying, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. Salvation is a free gift of God. It is unmerited. It is unearned. The grace of God, the gift of God has appeared. It's come. It's been revealed. It's been shown. It's been put on display. It's been put on display in the person of Jesus Christ. Friends, you and I, what's being said here, we don't force God's hand in salvation. Here's a, here's a, great, a great word for you that might be helpful or not. I don't know. But the word is monergistic. 
That means that salvation is a work of God alone. The word monergism literally means to work alone. And so Psalm 3.8, the psalmist declares, salvation belongs to the Lord. It is his. And Jonah from the belly of the fish says the same thing. You know the story of Jonah? He gets swallowed by a fish. In disobedience, he runs from God. A big fish comes and swallows him. And from the belly of the fish, he shouts, salvation belongs to the Lord. The grace of God has appeared. The gift of God, the gift of salvation given to all who believe. The appearing of the grace means that Jesus Christ came into the world. God gives us the gift of salvation appearing in the person of Jesus Christ. In eternity past, God, Father, Son, and Spirit decided that they would redeem a people for Jesus's, or for his own possession. We see that right at the end of, our, of this little summary in verse 14. And then God works to achieve that salvation. And we see thousands of years of human history all building and culminating in the person of Jesus Christ as he is revealed, as he comes into the world as a, as a humble, small infant in a stable. He appears and reveals God's plan of salvation. And only through Jesus can a person be saved. There is no other way but Jesus. When Jesus came into the world, he brought the completion of God's plan of redemption. The incarnation. The incarnation is the taking on of flesh. So when Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, comes into the world, he takes on flesh. The final act of redemption has begun. Jesus is the gift of grace. The grace of God appearing. And in verse 13, even as we just sang, in verse 13, there is not just one, but there is two. There is a future appearing, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He came. He fulfilled the plan of redemption set from eternity past. And then, and then, He promises that he'll come again. Paul says, oh, oh, don't miss this. I didn't put this in my notes, but I want you to see it. For all people, for all people, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. This is the good, this is a huge part of the good news of the gospel because there is no man, woman, boy, girl on the face of the earth that they hear the gospel that they cannot receive it by faith and be joined to Christ for all of eternity spending eternity in his presence not your your background your heritage your your past actions none of those things can prevent you from being saved by this gift of grace that God gives this is good news all people Paul says also Look in verse uh, 14. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Just look at that verse phrase. Gave himself for us. This is how redemption, uh, 
will occur. So Jesus appears, giving us a glimpse of the final stage of the redemptive process, the fulfillment of it. But this is how it's going to actually happen. Jesus is going to give himself. Jesus buys us back. I love the metaphors in the Bible. The metaphor, the metaphor here is financial. Redemption. Redemption is to gain something in exchange for payment. And after congregational worship today, you might go to lunch and you might sit down at a restaurant and you pay a dollar amount to gain food. And Jesus paid for our life with his, thereby redeeming us. He paid for it. Jesus paid for our life with his. This makes Jesus our substitute. It is a substitutionary sacrifice. He took our place. We should have died an eternal death. But Jesus died because of our sin. Not because of any sin of, in, on his. He was totally, completely in line with who God is. Never sinned. Fulfilled the law. Entirely, Jesus dies in our place. Our substitute, redeeming us. Our life is found in Him. Then Paul says, he says, gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good work. Lawlessness here is sin. It is transgressing what God has commanded to us. We transgress God's law, a clear standard given in Scripture. And because we transgressed that law, we were enslaved to sin. And Jesus buys us back. He redeems us from all lawlessness. He buys us back from sin. And he, it says, to purify himself for himself a people for his own possession. He cleanses us. He gives us his righteousness and he sets us apart holy in God's sight. We are no longer beholden to sin. We no longer belong to sin. Death no longer has a claim on us. Through Jesus' death, we have been redeemed. His life for ours. And now we belong to him. He is our master, not like a brutal, cruel, overlord master like sin, but a kind, generous master, feeding us with food that does not perish, giving us the water of life that does not spoil, leading us on paths of righteousness, joining us with himself so intimately that nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He equips us as his ambassador makes us zealous for good works. So much is loaded in these verses. And we could could go on. But for now, brothers and sisters, may it be your goal to read these verses and to reflect on the beauty of the gospel and to understand that this stands at the foundation of the house for all that we believe. All that we say is true. Everything that we are and everything that we have is because of this. You cannot, you cannot 
think that these things are confined to just the elders of the church. You cannot think that these thoughts are only important for prior to Christ, for prior to praying a prayer to be saved, but have no impact for you now. And so if, you, if I'm going on and you're like, yeah, I know this. Friends, you don't. The depths of these words cannot ever be plumbed and they will never be plumbed in all of eternity. You will never get to a place where you think to yourself, I get it fully. I understand what Jesus has done for me. But infinite death, infinite of sin, enslaved to sin. But Jesus Christ in his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection has now freed you, has now freed you from that and brought you fully into the kingdom of Christ. The gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done is seen clearly here. Seen clearly everywhere in scripture. But right here, we have a neat little summary. This is the foundation of the house. This is the sound doctrine that Paul wants Titus to know in order that he might teach what accords with it. We must constantly be attending to the foundation, looking for signs of damage or decay. Christians sometimes think of the gospel not as good news, but as old news. We cannot think this way. We say, being there, done that, I understand it. I need application. I need life lessons. I need positive affirmations. I need daily pick-me-ups. But there are, none of that exists apart from this truth. How could, you, how, could, how could you possibly think that this is not the most transformative message in all of the world for all of history? May God open our eyes to see that more clearly. We need the gospel to become the most glorious truth that we could ever come across. Jesus' life for yours. You were dead. Jesus makes you alive. In the back, we've printed just some simple little yellow cards with these verses on them. Let me encourage you to pick one of those up and commit this to memory. Because it is a neat little summary of the gospel because we have this, these, these words here and meditate on what is written here, what's inspired by the Holy Spirit so that you may see sound doctrine and be, and be continually assessing the foundation of the house. And that you may bask in the beauty of the gospel. Titus is instructed to teach what accords with sound doctrine. And this is the sound doctrine. But if we go back up the page to verse 1. Sound doctrine is... Uh, it comes after the, the with. And so, so the actual instruction, the actual command that Paul gives to Titus is teach what accords with sound doctrine. That implies that we know what sound doctrine is, but then he says to Titus, teach what accords with it. And so Titus is told to fight false teaching and cultural conformity, but by teaching what accords with sound doctrine. So not only is he going to teach the gospel basics here, and reflect on them, and uh, 
show men and women in Crete that they need to be continually reflecting on the goodness of God as on display in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now they need to know how to live in light of it. Because the culture around them was telling them to do completely different things. Was telling them to live in a completely different way. And so this is how Titus is to fight. He's to fight cultural conformity and false teaching by teaching what accords with sound doctrine. The foundation is the gospel. That's the sound doctrine. What does the rest of the house look like? The word accords here, again, not another word that we use regularly. Uh, We use a form of this word regularly. Uh, Accords with uh, is what comes along with. What it comes along with sound doctrine. We should say it like this. Christians live godly lives according to what? According to sound doctrine. We would say according. That's probably more part of our vernacular than accords with. But to be in accord is to be in agreement. It's to be consistent. The Christian's living must be in agreement with sound doctrine. The Christian's living must be consistent with sound doctrine doctrine. So Paul wants Titus to teach living that is consistent with true statements of belief. He wants Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine. In light of sound doctrine, in light of the gospel, in light of what he writes in verses 11, 12, 13, and 14, how do we live? How do we live? So, Look at verse 2. Paul is going to tell Titus to address five different groups of people. Older men, older women, um, uh, younger men than himself, and uh, bondservant. These are the groups of people that Paul tells Titus to address. Paul gives Titus personal instruction. A theme emerges here in verses 2 through 10. And again, we're going to kind of get stuck in verse 2 here. But in 2 through 10, there's a theme. And the theme is this. Older, more mature believers in the church are to be instructing and modeling godly living for younger believers. Older, more mature believers in the church are to be instructing and modeling godly living for a younger believer. So what I want to do is unpack these. This is what the house looks like. The foundation is the gospel, the foundation, sound doctrine, and here we are now. What does it look like to live in light of sound doctrine? Consistent. Life that agrees with The first up is older men. Older men. Paul says older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Let's break each of those off. The first one is sober-minded. Simply this. This is what this means. Think clearly. Think rightly. Avoid anything that would be a hindrance to wise thinking. We think of sober, the word sober, and we think of uh, steering clear of overindulgence in alcohol. 
Well, the view here is bigger. It certainly isn't, doesn't not include that, but it includes more than just that. It's avoiding anything that would cause your mind to be altered. For example, substances would be in that list. But also something as simple as lack of sleep. Pushing yourself too hard. Beyond the eating regular. Like, you, you know how your mind starts to go at 6 p.m., 7 p.m. when you haven't eaten since 11 a.m.? Sober-minded. You want to be sober-minded? Engage your mind. Read. Don't just punch out in front of the TV for a couple hours at the end of every day. Use the brain that God has given you. Think well. Think wisely. Be in a state where your mind is right. This is what the first thing that Paul says to older men. The second thing he says is dignified. Be dignified. I'm going to sum this up by saying this. Act your age. Act your age. You don't need to talk, dress, act like someone younger than you. Our culture, here's a way that we're oftentimes formed by the culture around us. Our culture celebrates youth, despises age. The Proverbs, though, say that gray hair is the crown of glory. And we should look completely different from the world in this. We're celebrating continually, uh, we're celebrating continually youth, whereas we should be celebrating wisdom that comes with age and maturity. Paul then says self-controlled. Older men, be self-controlled. Young men can be out of control. Spending money they don't have, chasing women, giving all sorts of passion. Older men shouldn't be this way. They should know how to be self-controlled. Their passions should be in check. They should know themselves. Self-control is the command to younger men too, if you see that. And it's the, uh, it's the command given to older women to pass along to younger women. And we see it right there in verse 12. The gospel, the revealing of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright. So, I mean, it gets four mentions right here in these 15 verses. It's important. Why? Why does it get four mentions? There's a clear gospel tie. There's a clear tie and a through line straight into the sound doctrine that Paul Paul outlines for Titus. Self-control is the command to young men, old men, young women, and to everyone. The gospel teaches us self-control. How? Because the gospel, in the gospel, we are freed from sin. Paul writes in Romans 6, 6, he said, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The work of Christ that purchases us, it redeems us from slavery to sin and by doing so gives us the ability to choose obedience to God's word. Self-control is mentioned in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians and it's taught here for men. Self-control. Finally, here we see older men are to be sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. I'm going to take that as a unit. Sound in faith, sound in love, 
and sound in steadfastness. Sound in faith. Uh, oh, so I've sent a video to many young men in our congregation, and a lot of men. And it's a pastor by the name of Bodie Bauckham, uh, and he's speaking to a group of, of men at a men's conference or something. And he talks about this very verse and says that Christianity is one of the only places where we tolerate mediocrity. And here's what he means. He means that men who have been Christians for 20, 30, 40 years, maybe more, uh, uh, they, they, they can't teach anything to anyone about the Bible. And if this were the case in nearly all spheres of life, a man that, like that would be considered a fraud and a failure. If a carpenter worked a job for 40 years and a young man just starting out asked the older man if he could, if he could just hang out with him and spend some time learning the ropes, and if this man who had been a carpenter for 40 years said to him, I don't know anything about carpentry, that would be ridiculous. That would be silly. It would be foolish. What has he been doing for the last 40 Men, we love to talk about what we know. We know our work. Women are relational. I, I come home after a meeting with another man, and my wife asks me, how's he doing? How's their marriage? Like, I didn't, we didn't talk about that. We talked about solving a problem at work. We, talk, I, we talked about house projects and building materials and car trouble. These are our spheres of expertise, and they're the things that we talk about as men. And so we would expect that a man who has been a carpenter for 40 years could teach a younger man the ropes. But in Christianity, that sort of seems, that sort of expectation seems intolerable. That men aren't held to any kind of standard of passing along what they have learned in their Christian life to younger men. And that's the work for the professional Christians, for the pastors. Those guys who are really invested. But you'll note, like I said earlier, that this passage is written to everyone. About everyone. It's just a small subset of people. It's not just the exceptional. It's the expectation for all, in this instance, older men. And so, older men, you are expected to be sound in faith. You're expected to have a healthy, well-maintained understanding of the gospel. You're expected to have a built on that foundation, a life that is consistent with sound doctrine. Paul also says that they are to be sound in love. Again, this is a unit. Sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. They're supposed to be sound in love. That means you're self-sacrificial, that you're not just focused on yourself, that you're focused on others. This is flows from the gospel as well because it's the self-sacrificial example that Christ gives us in his substitutionary sacrifice. We are to follow him into walking as he walked, laying down our lives for the good of others. Additionally, men are to be sound in steadfastness. Men, older men, if you've been a Christian for 20, 30, 40 years, and you're investing in a young man, you're going to see a lot of dumb stuff. That's just the reality. We, young men make mistakes and they'll make big ones. Here's what you cannot say. This is what Paul is saying. You cannot say, I refuse to continue investing in younger men because they keep making these mistakes. I don't understand their generation. They can go figure it, off the, figure it out themselves. 
sound in steadfastness. By doing this, by understanding the gospel, you understand that God has been infinitely patient with you. That he has shown you patience and forbearance as you've wandered. The free gift of salvation wasn't retracted because you took too long. Men and women, when we invest in one another, when men invest in younger men and they make big mistakes, the response is patient as God has been patient with you. Don't walk out on younger Christians because the process is taking too long. Okay, so verse 2. All right, so again, we're going to be in Titus a little bit longer, but, but here's what I want you to walk away from or walk away uh, from this with. Older men, older women, more mature believers in the church are to be instructing and modeling godly living for the younger believers. We'll keep the ball rolling on this next week and think about what Paul writes in the rest of these verses here. But let's work out a quick conclusion here for us. Two things, two implications that I want you to walk away with. The first is this, and I just said it. I'm just going to say it in a different way. It is imperative that older believers are active examples of godly living in the church. A lot of books, a lot of talks, a lot of church strategizing has gone into the under or the thought, how do we reach the next generation? How do we retain young people? The conversation was about millennials, and now it's about the next generation, whatever they're called. Gen Z, that's it. And here's a great place, friends, here's a great place where we should be consulting the Word of God and not wasting our energy chasing after some silly self-man-made strategy. The Word, when we ask the question, how do we reach the next generation, the Word in that phrase, reaching the next generation, makes me wonder what we were doing when they were actually within reach the first time. Because reaching implies stretching to get something that is not What are we doing with the next generation that exists in our midst as a church? And for those of you who might be 50, 60, 70 years old, all of those here need to be reached or continually ministered. What about the kids, the young adults, the people who fall in my generation? What are we doing with those ones that God has brought into our midst? Paul's aim here is that within the church, the older generation would put on display for the younger generation a life that is transformed by the renewing of their mind. That older men are sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, sound in love, and sound in steadfastness. And that would have an effect. The effect of training younger men in godly living that accords with sound doctrine. And the effect of showing the world that Jesus Christ is the single greatest treasure. And the reason the recent generations have walked, I can speak for my generation, the reason many men and women in my generation have walked out of the church is because of two things. First, hypocrisy. Because they saw people who lived inconsistently with a claim they believe the exact thing that Paul is telling Titus to teach against. What 
living that accords with sound doctrine, that is consistent with, that agrees with sound doctrine. They saw embittered legalists shouting at non-Christians. They saw joyless encounters with people who aimed to win arguments instead of living godly lives. They came home from congregational worship and instead of talking about what they were encouraged by or what they learned on Sunday morning, they caught at one another up on the gossip uh, around the church. They saw a general disinterest for gospel-formed character that is consistent with sound doctrine. And Monday through Saturday lived a completely different life than they did on Sunday. And they saw emptiness under the surface. They saw vacuousness. People going through the motions, focusing on production rather than formation. Friends, this is a place where the forgiveness that God has extended to us in Jesus Christ should transform all of that. It should not be so that we walk through the doors and have to put on a guise for one another because each one of us realizes that we are sinful, separated from God, and that only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ can we be made right with God. You didn't do it. God did. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Paul knew exactly how to fight against hypocrisy and vacuousness. Teach older men to act like older men, living consistently with what they believe. How is the next generation reached and retained? Is it lights and smoke machines and school backdrop, concert venues, bigger buildings? not what Paul cares about. He cares about godly character that's consistent with sound doctrine. Friends, we must have a single-minded focus. Single-minded focus on the truth of the gospel. I'm not saying fun isn't good or cool. It's just the delight is better. Delight yourself in the Lord. We're here to know God and delight in Jesus Christ. To be genuinely filled with joy. Not just to pretend like it for an hour on Sunday. We want to know Him through His Word. Walk in joyful obedience to the One who's freed us from the slavery to sin and redeemed us with His own life for His own possession. So friends, we need older, mature Christians to set the example. So if you've been a believer for 20, 30, 40 years, Is your life one that's consistent with sound doctrine? Do you know the gospel? Can you articulate it? Is verses 11 through 14 in chapter 2 of Titus transforming you? Have you internalized that truth? Are you seeking to understand how it applies? Even that's the wrong question though. I'm asking the wrong question. How does it apply to me? Makes it about you. It might lead to a mindset that simply says, just tell me what I need to do. This isn't just about doing. It's about Again, delighting in what God has done, finally, forever. Ask the Holy Spirit to transform you by the renewing of your mind as you spend time in God's Word. This isn't just writing down a to-do list. It's really genuinely desiring to live according to truth, walking as Jesus walked. The first implication, uh, older believers are meant to be active, Examples of godly living within the church. Second implication. Active, ex- uh, active examples of godly living are committed to 
simple obedience. Simple obedience to God's word. Not overcomplicating things. Simple obedience. Live lives that accord with sound doctrine. Will you do that perfectly? Absolutely not. But do you know what accords with sound doctrine? What accords with sound doctrine is sober-mindedness, dignity, self-control, and these qualities when produced in the believer lead to genuine ongoing repentance, not throwing up a facade, not throwing up a guise and saying, I got it all together. I got it right. You should look at me. Because when you're sober-minded, when you're dignified, when you're self-controlled, you think well and wisely according to God's word. You will see sin and the heinous crimes that you've committed against a holy God and you will not seek to justify it. You will not poo-poo it, but you will turn from it because you know the one who can actually forgive you and cleanse you of it, Jesus Christ. Simple obedience. Us together. Simple obedience. Know God, what he has said in his word. Live according to what God has commanded us. Teach others who are younger and less mature to do the same. And don't overcomplicate it. When you fail, repent and fall on Jesus and the forgiveness that he freely gives. This is how Jesus builds his church. When the threat of false teaching and cultural uh, conformity come to our front door, how will we fight? Through simple obedience, men and women, zealous for good work, set apart, a people for his own possession, passionately living, lives consistent with the word of God, the truth we find. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the clear commands that it gives to us. Would we not overcomplicate things this week? God, would we just look to know and understand better what you have said to us and ask the question, how might I walk as Jesus walked? God, would you give men, older men in this room, would you give them a desire to see younger men and younger believers as a whole be brought up in maturity and faith? God, would you give them the strength to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, sound in love, and sound in steadfastness? That we might reflect the gospel to one another and that we might reflect the gospel to the world around us. God, would you transform us even further this week by the renewing of our mind as we go to your word, as we consider who you are. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.